0: Listening to CrossPoint Church's weekly sermon audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Amen. I like that little bluegrass twist to that. Jennifer leaned over to me midway through the song and she said, When we sing it like this, my southern accent gets a little bit thicker. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Matthew chapter 6 where we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we find ourselves in this very well-known portion of Scripture that's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I think it would probably be better entitled the Disciples Prayer or the the Christian's Prayer because Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And we're going to work our way through that in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles. that's in the rack in front of you. You can Find a Bible there. Take that. If you don't own a Bible, keep it as our gift to you. If you're newer to the Bible and you're not used to looking up verses, scriptures in the Bible, you can find the page numbers of, uh, of Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15, where we'll be this morning on the screen. Same, We've got two different versions of the same Bible, two different copies, printings of the same version, so you can find it on page 811 or 634. And again, keep that Bible as our gift to you as you're finding that, this is a bittersweet Sunday. Uh, we are saying goodbye to a family that has been part of our church for the last few years, and uh, the army is sending them off. I didn't ask him if I could do this, so I may get in trouble for embarrassing them a little bit, But and he really outranks me and just about everybody in this room, but um, I'm a civilian now, so uh, he can't put me at parade rest and make me do push-ups, but... Chuck and Carmen Albertson uh, have been members of this church, and Chuck has been the regimental sergeant major for the 75th Ranger Regiment out of Fort Benning. Incredibly important organization, and he is transitioning out of that role. And they are going to Fort Drum, New York, where Chuck is going to be the sergeant major for the whole division. That's a huge job, huge responsibility. The 10th Mountain Division, um, just a, a really important unit in our army. So they're going up to Fort Drum. This is their last Sunday with their boys, Seth and Victor. They've just been a precious part of this church for the past few years. They're going, they're moving this week. You know, it's a tad bit colder up in Watertown, New York, than it is in Columbus, Georgia. Um, So pray for their adjustment to that. And then Chuck, uh, right after he kind of gets into his new job, um, is going to be deployed for uh, probably for most of the year, all the way through November, uh, as, as you know, kind of welcome to Fort Drum, go to Afghanistan is pretty much what's happening there. So do pray for Chuck and Carmen and the boys. And we are so grateful for you. We're grateful for the ways that you have served uh, our church and uh, grateful for the influence that you've been on soldiers and their families at Fort Benning with somebody in your responsibility to be uh, a, a firm and earnest and sincere believer in Jesus is an incredible testimony. And we're very grateful to your. For your service to our nation over the years and many, many, many deployments where Chuck has put himself in harm's way. And there are, uh, this is, there's a room full of people that have done that. So just so grateful that we get to serve those who serve us. And uh, we love you guys. We will miss you uh, dearly. We're very grateful for you. Praise God. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, as we work on this text, work through this text this morning, um, in one sense this is a bit of a challenge. We're going to talk about the idea, the topic of prayer this morning in about 40 to 50 minutes or so. That is, uh, it seems a little bit kind of like a fool's errand to try and think that you can cover all that there is to think about when you're talking about prayer in just one sermon. And so we're not going to do that. This is really going to be more of a a flyover and not necessarily a a detailed instruction in all that there is to say about prayer in just one sermon as we work through this Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you uh, to think about maybe buying a book on prayer that might help cultivate your heart for prayer. It might give you some specific tools on how to pray pray more effectively. Uh, one book in particular that this past year that came out that's helped me quite a bit. Robert, in fact, did a class on it um, last year. It's a book by Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City that we respect highly. And it's a book titled, very creatively, Prayer. So if you... <laughs> If you were to go to Amazon and just kind of type in the search box, Keller Prayer, that book would come up and, and you'd really benefit by, by reading that book. So my goal is not to give us a comprehensive sort of pragmatic how-to of prayer, although that is a beneficial thing to do, but I think beyond the scope of just one sermon. My goal is to stir in us a, a longing... For being people that pray. Robert read for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 4. That This beautiful truth. That Jesus, because of his work on the cross. Because we were fallen. God came and took on the likeness of sinful flesh. God the Son. Lived a perfect life. Bore the wrath of a holy father on our behalf, on the cross, extinguished it, removed it, rose again in victory over the grave, removed the barrier that was between us and God when we were separated from Him in our sins. And now, because of what Jesus has done, we now can enter boldly into our Father's presence, crying out to Him. And I I want us to... More than some pragmatic step on how to pray, which again is a beneficial thing to think about at times, but more than that, I want us to have our hearts stirred, stirred with boldness and compassion and and earnestness and confidence that no matter what your week has been like or no matter how you feel your state of worthiness is, that not because of how you feel, but because of what God has done in Christ for you, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you will cry out to God and say, God, help me. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, that even by a bunch of Christians primarily in a room thinking about approaching their father, that it would so warm and melt your unbelieving heart that you would have no excuse. In fact, you would have no other option than to say, I want some of that. And that would be the Holy Spirit priming the pump and melting the hardness of your heart and giving you a new heart so that you too can be a child of God and cry out to the only one who can do anything. That's my prayer today, that we would, we would develop in a, 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 that type of passion. There's this French cat. His name is, I think he's dead now because he was a French pilot back in World War II. I don't know anything about this dude other than I read a quote of him off of my Google machine. And I loved it. His name is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He's a French poet pilot. Really, he flew in World War II, I think, and he was also a poet, which I just love that combination. And he said, don't have it on the screen, but just let me read it to you. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men, men to gather wood Divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. (laughs) That's so good. I don't know where my boy Tony was when it comes to faith in Jesus. But what he's getting at there is so true. Right? So today... When we're talking about prayer, I don't want us to think about gathering the wood and all this kind of work, which is a good and noble thing to do in other settings. What I want us to do is to learn to yearn for the vast and endless sea of God's amazing grace. And that would be like a magnet that pulls his children to call out to him in prayer. So with that, let's, let's, uh, I feel kind of like I've preached already. (laughs) I haven't even read the text. All right. Let's go, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Let me read it all the way through and pray, and then we'll work our way back through a good portion of it. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses well as we think about these words on prayer prayer let's pray and ask the lord to help us understand father we are so grateful for your kindness to us in christ lord would you open our eyes to the beauty of what it means to be a child of god with the privilege to enter the throne room of our Father, and to call out. And if there's any in this room, and certainly I imagine there are, that are not yet your children, that are not yet trusting in you as Father through your Son, Jesus, would you do what only you can do? And would you make them yours this morning and give them the gift of faith and repentance so that they can behold the wonder of the Gospel? Do this, I pray. Make us a church that prays more passionately, more earnestly, more boldly. Not as clinical theologians, but as passionate children. I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's, let's look again at this text. And we're just going to handle verse 9 through about 13. At the beginning there, verses 5 through 8, he's contrasting, just like he did last week. Remember when we were looking at giving to the needy? He says, don't be like these people that try to make a religious show of everything that they do. And he's going to give us three examples. Last week it was giving to the needy. This week it's prayer. Next week it will be uh, fasting. And Jesus is contrasting people that are just wanting to be seen by other people. And really what's underneath all of that is a fear of other people. They're, They're governed by other people's opinions of them. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a a deeper, greater, more satisfying reward, and it is the pleasure. In fact, it is the the very presence of God Himself in your life. And so in verse 5 through 8, He says, don't be like those that are seeking this reward that's only temporal and earthly, but seek this heavenly reward. And so in verse 9, Jesus says this, He says, pray then like this. I think that's instructive. He's not saying that we need to pray with these exact words. He's saying pray in this way, with this posture, pointed in this direction. So this isn't necessarily something that we need to pray rotely every time we, we pray or approach God. The irony of it sort of is that this is maybe if you grew up in a more liturgical church, which I think is wonderful. The irony is, is that this is actually something that maybe you grew up reciting in church a lot. And I understand why we do that often in church culture, because it's used as an instrument to teach us. But there's, aren't we just vulnerable to the things that we do sort of regularly, to having them become rote? And so maybe you grew up reciting this prayer in church, and the very fact that you recited it in a kind of lifeless atmosphere that really wasn't teaching what the heart of prayer was actually you're actually doing the very thing that Jesus is to not do in his instruction and in prayer. Isn't that kind of an irony? And so we, we, we need to pray, not these exact words as if it's a formula, but we need to pray like this. And here's how he starts. He says with his first phrase, our Father in heaven. Now I want you to think about this as we even just, as Jesus opens up this prayer, our Father in heaven Think about this for a moment. What was the Trinity? What was God doing before creation? Before He created anything, and that was an infinite amount of time before time began. In fact, time is just a creation of God to mark our existence. He's outside of time. He's not bound by time. He's not limited by time. Time is part of creation. God created Time and before he created anything and became the creator, he was a father. He's a father, he's a son, he's the Holy Spirit, he's completely independent of anything around him. In fact, here's a theological word for you to write down. You can throw this one at your co workers on Tuesday afternoon and feel smart. It's called the Asaity of God. A, yeah, I know, it's big. You're like, wow. A-S-E-I-T-Y. I I before E, except in this word right here. A-S-E-I-T-Y, the aseity of God. It means that God is... Self-sufficient. God needs nothing. God didn't need us. The Trinity didn't get bored in heaven and decide to create us. Because God needs our fellowship. Before God created anything. Before he he spoke everything that is into existence out of nothing. He was a triune fellowship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is telling us, approach God. God as our father think about that aw tozer a, a pastor that pastored in the mid 1900s i wrote a lot of really helpful deep things and he 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 said and i i wrestled this with for with this for years thinking is this really true but i think there's a lot of a lot of merit to the statement he said that the most important thing about every person is what they think about when they think about god in other words what's the image of god when you when you have in your mind when you think about God. How do you think about him? And that will determine much about your life. And and Jesus is orienting us here saying that God, before he's creator, before he's the supreme sovereign of the universe, he is a father and he is our father if we are a Christian. Now, before we can just move on, we need to understand what gives us the right To call God our father, because not everybody can call him father. In fact, the fact that God is our father means that we are his children. And how did we become his children? Through, we've read about it already, we've sang about it, through the work of his son Jesus on the cross. It's the theological doctrinal term called adoption right? This week, right now, we have a member of this church, one of our pastors, along with many other families. I can look out and I can just see families in this church that have adopted children physically from other places, from other countries, or even here. That physical adoption mirrors this spiritual reality of how every one of us who's ever a Christian, became a Christian because we were not children of God, but God, we were created by God, but we have been been lost in our sin, we have rebelled against God, we're separated from God, but God, through the work of his son on the cross, bearing his wrath, reconciling his people to himself, adopts us. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons that means that we are all separated from god by by just natural birth we are by nature sinners and when god determines how he determined to save a, a lost People, is he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life where we have all rebelled. Jesus bears the wrath on the cross, rises again in victory over it. And now when God saves a person, he gives them a new heart so that they can see Jesus and trust in Jesus. And through Jesus, they become his son. So we are adopted as children, not just because we're alive, but because we have trust and faith in what he has done on the cross For us, just this past to give you an illustration of how powerful this idea of God being our Father is, I think I know. I'm pretty sure I've said this before in here. Um, Just this past November, Jennifer and I and the kids went home to El Centro, California, for Thanksgiving. That's my hometown. I moved away from 503 Winsley, El Centro, California. In June of 1989, I went away to college in New York, left, I was 18 years old, flew away to New York. I have not lived in my parents' house since then. I can, in fact, remember my mother crying at the airport in San Diego when I was getting away to go to college, and she was like super crying. My mom's a reserved person, but it was like, kind of like, it's not bubble cry. You know, she was going to, (laughs) and she says, you'll never live in our house again. You'll never live here again. I said, mom, come on, I'm going to go to college, do a few years in the army, I'll be back. And she was right. I haven't been back for more than a week or two at a time since 1989. Now, 1989 to 2015, November, what is that? 26 years. I get off a plane in San Diego. We drive through the beautiful desert from San Diego to El Centro, where there's nothing but coyotes and cactuses and tumbleweeds and border patrol agents. (laughs) And we... Pull into the driveway at 503 Winsley. I haven't been there in about a year and a half. And I haven't lived there since 1989. And I walk in that front door, and everything looks pretty much the same, right? I mean, mom and dad, they, you know, decorating tastes lagging behind just a little bit. I walk down the hallway, I take a left at the kitchen, and I'm in the kitchen. Right to the right is that little phone that if we had to call a girl, we, the one phone, you had to stand in the kitchen and call her. And then I walk straight to the refrigerator... Actually, before I go to the refrigerator, on the table, my mom has made these seven-layer bars, and it's like this graham crackers and this sugary nougat awesomeness with some chocolate chips and butterscotch chips, and then some more awesomeness that I don't know what it's about. She makes it for me every time I have one of those bad boys. I suck it down, and then I go straight to the fridge. I open up that fridge. I have not lived in that house since 1989, but I open up that fridge. I don't go get a cup from the cupboard. Because I need some milk, and I go straight to the carton, man. I pop that baby open, and it's my dad's house, so I drink straight from the carton. (laughs) I even put my lips on that bad boy if my mom is not looking, right? (laughs) Now, (laughs) if Reynolds or Terry went to my house just visiting my folks, and they went straight into the Kitchen and they put their lips on my mama's milk jug, that might be a problem. Because they're not my daddy's son. But I am, right? I am. I can put my lips on the milk garden. And friends, that's what that's what Jesus, before he even gets into the to the specific things, he's saying, that's who you are. That's your Privilege as a child of God. And it doesn't depend on how you feel that week. It depends on the grace of God as your father. He is never more your father, He is never less your father. He is your father. Listen to this quote from Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan in the 1600s. And I stumbled across this guy because Brooks was Charles Spurgeon's favorite Puritan. Listen to what Brooks says. He says that weak Christians are apt to sit down troubled and disheartened by the sin within, thinking that they can't drink straight from the milk carton, right? But they should remember to strengthen them against all discouragements that their person stand before God clothed with the righteousness of their Savior. And so God owns them and looks upon them with great delight as their Father. Our Father who is in heaven. The next phrase, Hallowed be your name. Now this word Hallowed, maybe you didn't grow up kind of reading the Bible and you're, oh, there's a biblical word. These guys just use kind of Christianese. No, no. Simmer down. This is not a hard word. The definition of hallowed, it's to ascribe worth or honor. It's not that we are making God anything by our confession. It's that we are merely acknowledging who God already is independent of us. It is orienting our minds to the beauty and the sufficiency and the holiness and the worth of God. We're not giving God worth. We are actually finding our worth as we rightly call Him what He is. So let me give you an illustration of that. That's an interesting thing to think that we aren't actually giving God worth, but when we behold something that majestic and beautiful, we actually find worth. We find our worth as we behold something so worthy. Uh, back in the early 90s, I graduated from college and I went to visit my brother. By the way, uh, every now and again you guys ask me about my stories about my brother, which were, um, he used to dominate me as a little kid and lock me in the bathroom and really punk me and beat up on me. I feel like I give him a bad rap. He actually led me to the Lord later on in my life, Um, so I want to redeem my brother a little bit, but he was a missionary with his wife in Paraguay for a couple years in the early 1990s, and after I graduated from college, I went down to visit them in Paraguay, and we visited... Uh, We went to Argentina and Brazil. There's this little corner of Argentina and Brazil where I think it might be one of the wonders of the world is the Iguazu Waterfall, the Falls de Iguazu, and it makes the Niagara Falls look like a water faucet. I mean, this thing is humongous, humongous. And I can remember standing on this little walkway that goes out into the middle of this big lake where the... The Iguazu Falls are crashing down and it is a glory of creation and nobody stands on that bridge out in the middle of this incredible wonder of the world. Nobody stands on the edge of that bridge beholding the power and the glory of water cascading down off of these cliffs and says, you know what? I'm I'm a pretty good looking guy. (laughs) I I don't look at my brother and say, you know, I think I could beat you in a 40-yard dash. We don't think about ourselves in that moment. We think about when we behold something wonderful, we find joy. And we find actually our place in the universe by beholding something incredibly powerful. And that's what happens when we say to God, hallowed be your name. We enter into prayer ascribing worth to God. And then Jesus says there at the beginning of verse 10, he says, your name. Kingdom come. What is the kingdom of God? Think less about a place rather than a person. Where the king is, there the kingdom is. It's King Jesus. But then when we think about God's reign and rule on this earth, uh, we we need to do a little bit of work just kind of thinking about the storyline of the Bible. Because although God is all-powerful, He has created this universe that He, in His providence and sovereignty, that He has allowed to fall. Now, it didn't sneak up on him. God didn't uh, just kind of lose control in the garden and now he's kind of scrambling to come up with a plan and then he sends the second person of eternity, Jesus, down to save the world. No, no, because the Bible tells us clearly later on that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth, right? So this has been a plan that God has enacted before even he creates a creation that he knows will fall. But God has, even though he is the utter and exhaustive ruler of all things, has created a creation that he knew would fall, planned for that fall, and has given a measure of authority to even an evil power like Satan. But yet, God is in complete control. And so when we are praying, we are praying, God your kingdom come, we're saying, not that we're going to establish the kingdom here, but we're saying, God, let your rule and your reign that you promised at the beginning would come back and smash the rule and the reign of your adversary. Let it come. Let the very thing that you said would happen, let it happen. It's, it's going to happen. God has guaranteed it. Lord, let it Come and we are saying, God, would you do the very thing that you have guaranteed that you will do, which is to re establish your utter and exhaustive rule over your creation? So, some of us may say, Wait a minute, Brad. I know you guys that believe in the utter sovereignty of God. I'm throwing up the red flag right here, and that's just that just doesn't make any philosophical sense for me for us to say that God is sovereign, then why should I pray, right? Have you ever had that sort of philosophical objection? If God has said that he's going to do this, then why should I pray? Well, it's right there in the text. God says, pray for my kingdom to come, even though I have guaranteed that my kingdom will come. Let me read to you from the Old Testament in Isaiah. Listen to this text, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8. This is good. You should underline this passage, Isaiah 46, speaking to Israel and their disobedience at this time, a specific situation, but this text becomes kind of a big panoramic view of how God operates in all things, remember this and stand firm and recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, this is Isaiah 46, verse 8, for I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is none like me, verse 10, listen to this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So God is saying here, I'm going to do it. My kingdom's going to come. I'm going to conquer. Jesus is coming back. I will vanquish all sin. All evil will be purged. And then he tells us to pray for the very kingdom that he promises will come, to pray for it to come. (laughs) Now, let me give you an analogy here just to kind of help our little smart-alecky little ways. If I told my son, son, mow the lawn. Well, Dad, what are you talking about? If I don't mow the lawn, you're going to mow the lawn anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I I know I can mow the lawn, and I know that lawn will be mowed by the end of the day. I have said that lawn will be mowed, and it will be mowed. (laughs) Now, son, let's try it one more time. Mow the lawn. I'm telling him to do the very thing that I said will definitely happen. Do you see these two truths that we just wimp out? Oh, how can God be sovereign and man be responsible? Friends, come on. Don't be caught up in these. I mean, it's a, a good thing to think about. But don't be distracted by this. He is the potter. We are the clay. And friends, that that utter sovereignty of God that says my kingdom is coming, I will surely do it, shouldn't cause us to push away in laziness, but it should cause us to put our hands on the plow and go after it in diligence because we know that he is sure and certain and it will happen. So that gives me motivation to give myself to the work of God because what he has purposed, he will do. And what a privilege. Right? What a privilege to participate with God in his unfolding plan, right? What a privilege to participate with God. Can we see it that way? I wish my boys would see what a privilege it is to mow the lawn when I tell them, but anyway. <laughs> Your kingdom come. He goes on and he says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want us to think about two aspects of God's will here. There's there's two the theologians in the history of the church have. have, have have distinguished between two aspects or two ways of looking at God's will or two two ways that the Scriptures speak of God's will. One is God's sovereign will, often called His will of decree. In other words, what God says He will do, He will do it. Irrespective of anything, we can't stop, right? We just read in Isaiah 46 where God said, I have said I'll do it. I'll do it. He's not asking for participation at that moment. He's just saying, I'm going to do it, even though he calls us to be part of it, to be the means by which he accomplishes his end. Psalm 115, verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens and he does or he wills whatever he pleases. He, he will do what he wants to do. He's not bound or limited or needing anything to accomplish his sovereign will. But then the scripture also speaks of this moral will or the commands that God gives his people to help them live in ways of obedience towards him, which he knows that they will not perfectly follow through. They won't perfectly obey. So this is what Paul is speaking about in Ephesians Chapter 5, verse 17, he says, don't be foolish or don't be stupid, but understand what the will of God is. In other words, how God has commanded us to live, that type of the will of God, as opposed to this sovereign will of God that he will do regardless. He says, understand what the will of God is. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, uh, the apostle Paul writes these words, and he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So God's will, God's desire for your life is to, for you to grow, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in the holiness, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So can you see the distinction there between what God has willed that will happen and then what God commands or wills for us to do and live? And what I think is going on here in this sense of being God's will is Jesus is saying, pray that God's will, his moral will, what, what he has commanded his people how he's said this is how you should live pray that this would be heeded on earth and we as christians are like between heaven and earth and we are saying god let your kingdom come Come, Lord, let your rule and your reign be obeyed and let everything be vanquished that is opposed to you. And we have one hand on earth and we're saying, let's, let's come on, come on, let's live more like what God has called us to do for our joy. And the Christian is like between two worlds, saying, God, let your will be done and let it start in my life. God, work in my soul. When I go to God, I want to pray, God, iron out places in my heart that are still disobedient to you and do what you will do and then god and then jesus takes a turn here he goes from this majestic the kingdom of god coming the hallowedness of god's name the will of god being done and he it's like he goes from the majestic to the mundane in verse 11 and he says after we've been dwelling in the clouds of god's utter sovereignty he says then give us this day our daily bread in fact, the turn is so drastic that the early church fathers in like the first few centuries, when they were interpreting this verse, they said, surely God doesn't just mean like daily bread, like food. Surely what Jesus means there is like he's talking about himself, like himself as the spiritual bread from heaven, right? Surely it's not just so mundane as an everyday need of a meal. And then the reformers came along a couple centuries later and they said, no, that's exactly what it means. In fact, they read the early church fathers and they said, They were exceedingly absurd. (laughs) And what they say here is that, yes, what Jesus has in mind here is just, Lord, give me my everyday needs. And notice that it's daily. Notice the significance of that word daily. In other words, God, don't set me up for life so I can cruise. But Lord, make me dependent on you. That's what's going on, I think, in the Old Testament when God's people is wandering through the desert and God is dropping manna and birds from heaven and he's only doing it in daily increments so they won't get fat and happy and lazy. And that's our prayer. God, give us our daily bread. And then he goes on to say, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So is God saying here, in fact, let me skip down and read verses 14 and 15. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus says at the end of our little section here, says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that God forgiving us is conditional upon us forgiving other people? Well, of course not. Because we realize that the rest of the Bible talks about how God forgives us us solely because of grace. Not because we have to do anything first, but because of the grace that is in Jesus. What he's saying is, is that the truly forgiven heart will bend out forgiveness to a world around them. In Matthew chapter 18, there's this really convicting parable that Jesus offers about this unforgiving or unmerciful servant. And he has this master that has forgiven him like 10,000 talents, and he just washed his record clean. And then this servant that's been forgiven such a great amount then is owed by somebody else just a little, tiny little sum of money, and that person can't pay him back, and then he beats that person and treats him poorly. And then some other people go and tell the master, hey, you remember that guy that you forgave like 10 million dollars? Well, somebody owed him like hundred dollars, and he was, he was unmerciful to him, and the, serv- the master calls him back in and he says, what, what, what's the deal? What's the deal? How can you you didn't truly understand what it means to be forgiven if you yourself are not a forgiving person. And so what Jesus is saying is here when we pray, God, God I, I want to let go of the grip I have on self-justification and be the type of person that the gospel bends out. And I know that God is in control. And then He ends in verse thirteen with this prayer. He says, "Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." We are completely dependent on Him, not just for our salvation. One time in that moment where He opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ, but then as Christians, we, Lord, we need we need You every day. We need You to lead us not into temptation, to deliver us from evil we need your help day by day and this is why god leaves us here to be people of prayer he leaves us here to fight this progressive fight against sin and temptation and evil so that as he wrenches our hands from them we become a display of the beauty of christ pray then like this our father In heaven, the one who I can go to boldly, not because of anything good in me, but because of the good of Jesus. Hallowed be your name. Worthy are you, God. Your kingdom, your rule, your reign, come. Let your will, let your ways be done in my heart. Let me not be a person who has had a one-time confession and now my life isn't congruent with what I confess, but let your will Your ways, let me saturate myself in your word. Let me be a part of a church family so that your will can be in increasing measure done in me. Lord, bless me today. Don't make me fat and lazy and happy on your blessings, but but keep me trim and and ready to seek you for new mercies in every new morning. And God, let me let me bend mercy out to others because you have been so merciful to me. Let me view everybody through the lens of your redeeming grace in my life. And God, I'm going to need your help tomorrow and a week from now and two weeks from now. And I can't coast. I need you. I need you to, to keep me from the things that you saved me from because I'm so prone to be like a dog returning to his vomit. And so I need you to keep me away from temptation and to deliver me from evil daily. Lord, I need this. And do this, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the joy of of my soul. Let's pray this way. Let's pray this way. Now if this has overwhelmed you. And you're thinking oh man. I can't remember half of this. In fact I'm getting hungry now. I wish you'd wrap it up. And one, more, one more quote from Brooks. Thomas Brooks. Spurgeon's favorite Puritan. I want this to give you hope. Because you may be so broken, you may be so busted up, you may be so maybe so burdened with life that like just any instruction just feels like another brick in your rucksack. Like, oh, great. Like I think what you said is true, but that's just another thing for me to do. Friends, this is not a checklist of little things I gotta do. Oh my god, heaven, heaven, how I gotta No! Remember, you are a child of God if you are a Christian. Open the door, walk down the hallway, take a left at the kitchen, pop open the fridge, drink the milk, come boldly into the throne of grace, and cry out to God, not because you have a paradigm, or a scheme, or a system, but because Jesus is your King, He is your Savior, God is your Father, and that gives you every right and privilege to cry out to God, our Father in Heaven. Listen to what Brooke says. Certainly, the very soul of prayer lies in the pouring out of a man's soul before the Lord. Though it be but in sighs, groans, and tears, one sigh and groan from a broken heart is better pleasing to God than all human eloquence. Amen. Amen. Come on. Let's not be a church that prides itself on theological precision but has cold hearts when we pray, right? Let's 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 bust through the door because of what Jesus has done. Let's walk down the hallway and let's drink let's drink and that drink may be a moan a groan a sigh but let's let's pray let's pray and let's do it right now and some let me a burden here before we wrap this thing up some of you young men in this room you are so conscious of what you look like and how you comport yourself around other people that you are bound by your perception of yourself. You need to lead out. You need to lead out in your wife, you need to lead out your children, and you need to stop being so stinking, stupidly cool. And you need to lift your hands, get down on your knees, open your Bible, repent of your sin, and go after God. You don't need instruction. You don't need another little group you meet here and there. You need to finally right now get real with God and go after Him because He, if you're a Christian, is your Father. Go after Him right now and stop being a cool, punk Christian. Do it right now and go after God. Because He is your good. And gracious Father. Let's pray. Lord, I want to be like that. I want to be like that, God. I wanna God, I wanna be like that. I don't wanna be a doctrinal jerk. I don't wanna be somebody that looks looks condescendingly at people who may not have it all together, but who sigh and groan a whole lot better than I do. Lord, I, I want I want my theology to produce in me doxology. I want my knowledge of God to produce in me an experience of God. I want to know you. I want to I want to know you better. I want to call out to you. I want to I want you to show me great and unsearchable things that I do not know. I want your will to be done in my life. I want to be purged of things that still vex me. I want, I want to see people saved. I want to see young men in this church be roused into passion for God. I want, I want us, God, to be a church that wins the loss for you. I want us to be a church that sends people out. God, I, I want us to be a people that gives ourself up for the joy and the glory of the coming kingdom. God, do this. Do this in me, God. I'm, I'm so so easily comforted. I am so easily lazy, God. Stir in us a passion, God. And, and, and when it comes out, God, would we, would we just groan out? Would we sigh? Would we, would we give up our hearts to you right now? And let it not just be an emotional reaction, but God, let it be a posture of my heart and this church. Do it, Lord, I pray. Do it, I pray, for the glory of your name and the good of your people and the salvation of lost all across this city and across the world. God, do do it, I pray, God, come, 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 Lord Jesus. Where are you my father? it be. Your your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give me Lord just enough for today so I wake up tomorrow seeking you afresh Lord let me be a forgiven pardoned rebel who gives grace to others Lord guard my wandering heart I'm so prone to wander do it. I pray do it. Do it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.